This is a Bulldog Radio podcast. The other one, MIA, Joe, <laughs> RIP. Full mics. Well, I would say I'm not even full mics and takes team. 66% yeah. of the mics and 66% yeah, of the mics and takes team is is here. So, boys, uh, you know, where it's Thursday, you know, we said we're gonna do episode three and four, and here we are. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, this was the one about the Pistons. So, I see the jersey flying in your background. I'm definitely excited for this one. This was. Um, the one I related the most to, I think, just because, not that I grew up and I wasn't born yet, but I, I've heard about Isaiah Thomas, Lambeer, Dumars, Robin, before he was, uh, you know, he transplanted over to the Spurs into Chicago. So if you guys just want to hop into it, this episode really is about Rodman um, post-Pistons, and then it kind of jumps back to when he's with the Pistons. But this first episode, episode three, I'm sorry, starts with Rodman, and he explains how important he was to those championships team, championship teams. Yeah, he was amazing, very vital part. He won back-to-back Defensive Player of the Years, and honestly, you can make the case he's the greatest defender of all time. Just the guys he was guarding between Magic and Jordan. Dennis was always asked to get the hardest job. He was always asked to do the thing, and he – Came 100% all the time. And he had, like we talked about, Scotty Pippen, a crazy background. He went to Southwest Oklahoma. It was another NAI school where he averaged 28 points per game because he didn't even know if he was even going to play college basketball because he didn't have a lot of offers. And his growth was amazing. In the Detroit teams, we just had a very good team. We made five straight conference finals from that time period from 87 to 91. And uh, three Hall of Famers on that team with Isaiah, Joe, and Dennis. Dennis was a huge key. Yeah, Dennis was absolutely huge. It was just like when the Bulls ended up getting him from the Spurs, thanks to the management. And pretty much um, Mr. Stack was really the guy that really brought him in because Jerry wasn't really about Dennis. He didn't really want him there. But Mr. Stack ended up kind of convincing him to take a chance. And when it's like the guy said that on the first day of practice, he fit like a glove, Scotty quoted. He just fit perfectly with the team. He did the dirty work. He really didn't want to steal all the spotlight with from Michael and Scotty for what they were doing with their scoring, but the dude could rebound. I mean, his bring out throughout his career, he averaged 13 rebounds, and he had I believe it was five games where he would not score a single basket and have over 20 rebounds. That is just absolutely absurd. And that's the thing is he really enjoyed doing the dirty work, and he quoted that he wanted to get punched in the face and get up like just absolutely beaten up in yeah. games. And a lot of guys are like, I'd rather score 30 than take one right to, right to the face. But that's just the way Dennis was. And that honestly is what helped him fit so well on this team. Yeah. And he, you know, Isaiah Thomas talked about him when he first came into the league, that he was kind of a simple guy. Uh, you know, Sally said, you know, he talked about always, you know, just escaping from the city and making your own fire and making your own meal on that fire. Um, you know, obviously, couple years in the league kind of changed him. Uh, he's a different kind of personality, especially when he meets Madonna. So I, mean, but I think, yeah. I think that was what really helped him though, is, you know, he felt like he was stuck in his own little mold. And once he met Madonna as, you know, as much as that was kind of short lived, 
she kind of taught him that, hey, you need to be your own spirit. You need to be your own person. And, I mean, Robin definitely did that when he came to the Bulls. I mean, he had different hair colors. I mean, he was I mean, drinking beer before games. I mean, which is pretty common, I guess, back then. But, you know, you were doing all these things that were, you know, just outside the box things. Like he's, you know, we get into it later, but he asked for a vacation in the middle of an NBA season, which yeah. is, I mean, not really heard of now. So I thought it was, you know, it was interesting to, to see, you know, the origins of Dennis Rodman before he became who Dennis Rodman is today. I, I thought it was, I thought it was good though. Yeah, like he, like when he was on Detroit, he, even Isaiah even said he was kind of like this quiet, you know, kid, and kind of mm-hmm. I would kind of say Chicago kind of turned him out because then when we we all see like the crazy stuff, the thirty threes in his head. But his Detroit years really, he made his name. He was such a good defender. Obviously, the back to back defensive player of the year award, like I said, and just always having the tough assignments. I mean, Dennis was a really really big key part. And since when we're talking about the bad boys. They beat the Bulls three straight years in the playoffs, 88, 89, and 90. And he played a huge part with them. Obviously, we're going to get into it, the Jordan Bulls. Yeah, for sure. And the one thing that was just kind of different with Dennis Rodman is, like, he didn't really have, like, the aspiration to score all the time, kind of like I said earlier. But just the the one thing that I can remember the best out of this episode is when he was talking about his like aspiration to learn how to rebound and he's he's given all the the hand signals where he's watching the ball come off the rim he's learning when it's going to go off go long who's shooting it like bird has spin magic doesn't have spin mike's is always going to go one direction it's just like those things we don't see in the nba today with a lot of these guys they really want to get you know points in the box score, not really in the rebound department outside some other guys like Andre Drummond were kind of accustomed to racking up boards a lot, and that's kind of what got him his money. But, I mean, absolutely, Travis, this bad boys team, they they were a very good team, and what really set them apart was their physicality and just the way they played. And during that time, they were, I believe, the, the number one team in the league in field goals made, but they were, like, fifth in attempts or in like 16th or 17th and three-point attempts they did not shoot the three ball at all they were always going to go to the drive they're going to pound the ball in the lane and that's how they scored they just really out physical teams during this era yeah and it was definitely not like the normal you said like isaiah talked about how that wasn't pretty boy ball he said it was kind yeah. of bully ball and they embraced that role Rodman, who definitely loved that role, like you said, you know, he learned a lot about how to play someone, where the ball is coming off someone's hand, how it's coming off someone's hand. You know, I thought that was super interesting because he really mastered the art of rebounding. Um, but, yeah, I think they definitely, you know, John Sally's in there and he's talking about, man, we loved it. Like, we we absolutely loved being the guys who would just spoil everything because they knew you know, Jordan was the guy that NBA wanted to be the face of the league. You know, and they wanted, you know, Bird was Bird was like that. Magic was like that. So they just wanted to play spoilers. I mean, that was a powerful team, especially when they beat the Celtics. You knew they were going to be the kings of the East. Yeah. Um, you know, this was before Jordan and them were starting to get traction winning as a franchise. But overall, I mean, I think Robin going there actually probably helped him gain more of an edge because he said in college he wasn't really a troublemaker. And he said, no. like, yeah, the bad boys were the ones who basically gave him, you know, that, you know, grittiness, uh, the grinder on the floor. 
Yeah, and it's just so incredible to see, like, his growth. And, I mean, you are, like, just that bad boy image, him playing with guys like Bill Lambert, Rick Mahorn. Like, that kind of, like, turned him out. And, like, with the bad boys, us beating, we were kind of, like, the Chicago Bulls roadblock because the NBA was so ready after Magic and Bird were getting old. Like, Michael's our next guy. They're like, he, you know, Davis turned them like he's our golden boy. Finally, we got our next guy to take over the league for at least the next decade. And we were just like this roadblock. We were like, you know, uh, we're going to be the party stoppers. And we did. And Isaiah's still the only uh, player in history to have a winning – he has a winning record against Michael Jordan in the playoffs. Overall, 36-29. and 29. He beat a prime Bird. And um, Prime Magic. I feel like he doesn't get enough talked about. People really need to bring Isaiah his flowers, uh, you know, honestly. And that was just such a great team because we made five straight conference finals. Should have won three straight titles, that bad boys team. Questionable call in 88 against Kareem on the foul on Bill Beer, But it was just an incredible run we had. It sucks the way how it uh, ended. Though. Yeah, like the, the history really of the Detroit Pistons were built around this bad boys kind of the I wouldn't call it like a dynasty, but it was an era. The bad boys era really yeah. was what shaped us to kind of what we're perceived as a team. Like we're not going to be the most like finesse players. We're not going to shoot the lights out every night, but we're going to be although that team that's going to out rebound out physical teams to end up winning. We have a lot of our management getting guys that kind of fit that mold. And really, like, the Pistons ended up in a couple years later kind of going down the road picking up guys like the Wallaces, Ben and Rashid, and then you got guys like Torian Prince as well and Chauncey Billups, who's my guy right yeah. up there on the wall. Mm -hmm. Like, those guys those guys fit almost the kind of the same mold. Obviously, they're not going to be that huge, going to punch you in the face kind of team like the yeah. bad boys were, but they still – they weren't the most athletic, the best 100% free throw line, nine or – 40% three-point shooters like we see out of like the Warriors, for example, last couple of years. But they were just kind of that similar team that it, I, it just shows you don't need all the skill in the world to still make a great basketball team. Yeah, and Sally even said, you know, he's, we weren't the most talented, but we were the most physical. And that's what you could do in that NBA during those times. The rules were, you know, you could do you, – I mean, you could punch a guy. And you'd yeah. <laughs> probably be in the game. you just – oh, that's a hard foul. So you'd be totally fine – with that, so I think I don't think they would fly today. Definitely not in this NBA. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, Robin even said it's soft. Oh, no. So, but I, I mean, go ahead. Honestly, oh, when I cut you off, Barry, no, I just want to say like one last thing about it. I really don't know. Like James Worthy even said in the documentary, how did Jordan make out of this alive? Every time, you know, uh, Malone was even talking about one of the coaches. Every time Lambeer, Mahorn, just constantly elbowing him, they really don't know how he, you know, made it out of alive. It was just crazy and it made him get you know finally over the summer use the weight room and to finally build up his upper body because he knew he had to do them beat them mm -hmm. and now the the documentary hops into where jerry Krause sees that he has to get rid of this coach and you have to hire in doug collins who at the time was really young but jordan really meshed with him because they had you know a mutual mutual respect and they kind of had the same ideology of what was going on. I mean, he wanted the ball to go into Jordan's hand. I mean, every possession, damn near. So, like, that's what he wanted. And, you know, Jordan's like, cool, I'm totally fine with that because he knew he was, he knew he was the best player on that team. Um, but, you know, I, I, I didn't really know too much about Doug Collins, but watch him. I loved his energy. I loved his passion of him, you know, sweating, drenched in sweat. Um, yeah. every game, just how animated and excited he gets uh, on the floor throughout the game. I thought that was 
I thought that was one of the coolest things. You know, as a coach, you want to see, you know, the passion. And then, you know, you move into Phil Jackson, who is the complete opposite. I mean, very, you know, he got on you, but he was very laid back. Um, a different coach, for sure. You know, he had Steve Kerr talked about him having, you know, Native American, like, yeah. cultures and ideas put into practice to instill focus and discipline. And uh, I, I thought that was, I thought that was uh, really cool. Yeah, I mean he's a, he's a Zen master. That's what really mm-hmm. helped. It, it, at first, Michael even said he wasn't a Phil Jackson fan because Doug Collins was putting the ball in Michael's hands. Phil Jackson was taking the ball out to try to make it more of a team game. And at the time, Michael didn't really realize that. He just felt like, well, he even said in the documentary, he's like, well, five seconds left on the clock. I don't want Bill Cartwright taking a shot. He's like, that's just BS. Right. It's not a good shot. And I mean, and he had a point, but he knew they weren't winning and. Jerry Krause made a very ballsy move because this is a team that just lost in the conference finals four games to two, and, and we're up 2-1. So they were two wins away from making the finals in 89. So he took a chance, and obviously Phil Jackson was already a part of the program as an assistant coach, and he was um, ready. But honestly, uh, to go back on the Doug Collins thing, I love how animated he was. One of my favorite parts is when he hit, uh, Jordan hit the game winner against the Pistons off the glass, and they were describing the last play after the game, and Doug Collins goes, well, basically, it was just like, give the ball to Jordan, everybody else, get out the effing way. He just does a spread thing with his fingers. Yeah. I just thought that was I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, and 100%, MJ, why, why would you hate a coach that's giving you the ball all the time? That's, that's what he wanted. He wanted the ball. He wanted to have the ball in his hands to make things happen. And, like, Doug Collins was – he was a great coach, and he ended up, he ended up coaching down the road kind of more towards our time a little bit as well. And as assistant, I believe he was a head coach for a little bit as well. But I mean, this the fact is, Mm -hmm. yeah, like exactly. Like he's a very good basketball mind. And it was really humbling to learn like that Jerry Krause, like he liked Phil Jackson, but like Doug Collins really, it wasn't Krause forcing Jackson in as much as Doug Collins. Like he said, he's like, Phil can lead this team. And he kind of even left Bill Jackson to step into his place, which is kind of a really humbling thing because a lot of coaches nowadays kind of fight for the reputation as much as they can and almost want to get fired more than give it to somebody else. It's just really interesting to see like Doug Collins personality, like his charisma is through the roof. Like we've seen with him sweating through a whole shirt on in a game. And just the fact that MJ went to him after his first or during his first game in the fourth quarter, like, the dude's drenched in sweat. He's nervous. It's the MSG. It, all the lights are on him. It's his first game. And MJ said, here, just have a sip of water. Let me let me take care of this. And he ends up scoring 40-plus and wins the game. It just showed how much those two had trust in each other. And that's really what led to them starting to um, create this successful franchise that's kind of the we can win a lot more than we can lose because of the previous years where they were just – um, like a couple steps from a dumpster fire before MJ got there, they're starting to build themselves up conf- with confidence. And then Phil comes in and then everything just really starts clicking. And it would have clicked right away if the bad boys weren't there for sure. And I think what pushed Collins out of Chicago was the defiance of Tex Winters. Um, Tex Winters was the assistant that Jerry Krause really loved. He was a guy who, and this is where the Zen master gets his triangle, this is where Phil Jackson gets his triangle ideology. Uh, Collins, you know, we mentioned, you know, Jordan wanted the ball in his hand the entire time. Well, the triangle did absolutely the opposite of him becoming, you know, you have 33 options with the triangle to where you can 
triangle where you can, you know, you have 33 options with the triangle, and then you have, you know, only a few options with Doug Collins' offense where it was in Jordan's hand. You know, the shot was always ending um, with Jordan. But I thought that was the reason why Collins was out. You know, he said, you know, uh, you know, he said in the interview or whatever, he said, you know, you could sense it. You know, I was, it's my time or whatever. But I think he knew, you know, the writing was on the wall. Um, that he was going to be out just because I don't think he aligned with Jerry Krause. Now that was it could have been a very bad move, but I, obviously it all worked out. Um, minus you're right, the bad boys Pistons, but I I think it all worked out. Uh, you know Krause's idea of taking taking a coach who took them to the conference finals and then replacing him with an assistant who was kind of an oddball, uh, and we can talk about the next episode, but kind of an oddball uh, in the association. Yeah, definitely. He had to take a risk. And Michael, obviously, all of them were like, you know, what are you doing? We just made the conference finals. We're this close to finally making the NBA finals. But the Zen master, you know, he was he was working under Collins. But Collins even felt like he was better for the Bulls. And Tex Winter doesn't deserve enough. He doesn't get enough credit. He's the one who created, like you said, the triangle offense. And this is a man who's 9-0 and in the NBA finals in his lifetime. That's insane. And I just think when they finally – you know, put in inserted the triangle offense. It was able to create different options. And this is a team that could have really won seven straight championships. We could talk about a little bit. Um, well, not well, seven overall. If the migraine game in 1990, game seven, when they lose at the Palace, if Scotty doesn't have that migraine, sadly, we, we might only get one championship being realistic because this, this is a game the Pistons did blow out the Bulls, but Jordan was kind of left there alone. He ended up the game 31 8 and 8. It's just. As soon as Phil came, he made a direct impact. And, you know, I mean, that's why his time there was so successful. And Jerry Krause did make another great move as a GM. Yeah, and you just talked about Scottie Pippen and who was probably the most influenced and successful player because of the triangle offense. It was really Scottie Pippen because he was now starting to get his opportunities to take the ball to the hoop and make stuff happen for him just as – he really didn't get it that much as more as a secondary player with Doug Collins, who was always get the ball to Mike on, we're going to win the game kind of mentality where now when you got three options leading to third, like in the triangle, and then obviously 33 options overall as they're quoted in the film, but it's just like, like Pippen with the give and go, they were doing a lot of outside inside movement, which really kind of was almost giving Detroit a little bit of fits. You could say at times when they started to really perfect this, because like, when Jordan was going to drive the hole, obviously they're going to knock him down with the Jordan rules. But then, like we learned kind of in in advance with Paxson in the, the Lakers finals, kind of almost what could have been made it more deadly with the triangle offense. Now when you got MJ driving, the whole defense is collapsing on him before he gets in the air. And now you get a wide open kick out to guys like Pippen who could shoot the three ball really well, John Paxson as well. And those guys really got all this success from not only the triangle offense, but Michael's reputation as being the best player in the world at that time. Yeah, and it, he even I even wrote down here, I said everyone really blossomed when the triangle offense was implemented into the Bulls' uh, you know, philosophy because you're right, everyone was able to, you know, Jordan didn't really like the offense at the start, and rightly so because the ball was being taken out of his hand, but it made everyone a better player because, you know, they, this is a problem they talk about with, like, Russell and uh, Harden, you know, you rely on a teammate, you know, they take so many shots, but if you have a person in the corner, it's really hard for you to make a shot after you've been standing in the corner the entire time uh, throughout the three quarters of the game, then you're asked to make a corner three when, 
you don't even have, you know, you haven't taken a shot the entire game. So I, I think this was able to keep everyone in the flow of the offense. Um, you know, obviously there is, I would say that's pretty bad if you have Cartwright taking the final shot. You always want Michael <laughs> to take the final shot. Yeah, but exactly. I, yeah. I, I think this offense was right because it did create more threats um, from the Bulls team as opposed to, you know, we see in the Jordan rules of, you know, you take out Jordan, it's kind of like cutting off the head of the snake, then everything's done. Uh, to put it graphically, but you know, you you know, I think this just made everyone uh, a viable option on the offense, and it made the whole uh, opposing team think about the entire uh, offense. Yeah, I think when Jordan finally realized he needed, you know, to use his teammates to, in order to win a championship, that's when he became really Michael Jordan. Like he became the goat. He like at first he was just mainly ball hugging, and he was getting like job done to a point, but it wasn't like getting to where they really wanted to be the promised land. When he finally started doing that and got one all star, you know he never lost again. And obviously we can get into it in '91 when they finally got over the hump after losing to Isaiah and the Bad Boys three straight years. They finally swept the Pistons. Then Pistons did the famous you know no handshaking you know mm-hmm. after the game, and the Bulls felt some type of way. But my take on that is. I think I'm not really mad at Isaiah and them for doing, obviously, you know, hometown Pistons. If you guys know before the game started when they were getting ready to sweep them, Jordan was saying this is good for basketball, that they're, you know, getting – that we're um, dethroning them because they don't play basketball the right way people want to see. Yeah, he was talking crap. Took... <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I'm a Jordan, and I'm a Jordan fan, but I don't appreciate that either because you're already getting ready to dethrone them as a champion. Now you're kind of coming at their character as a person. This is more than basketball when you start saying – they're bad people because all you know them is is basketball players like like Bill Ambeer and them might be rough on the court but you don't know them as a person could be someone you want to do business one day with I don't know mm-hmm. but to stay on point like I just felt like when he took when he set took that shot Pistons you know you know made it obviously when they knew they're going to lose the game like yeah we're not shaking these guys hands I think Joe Dumars was the only one and that was it yeah an absolutely great point because a lot of people didn't realize that because the film really didn't put that into context as well and they didn't really show it as much as they did a lot of the walking off and all the, the the lights were on them and everything was going on and everyone's like, what are these guys doing? And that's a great point because, I mean, the fact is, is Jordan was a great player, but Jordan let people know he was the best player. The dude would talk his game up because he was just that guy. He was confident. We see that throughout the whole series. He's a confident guy who will bet on himself. He will let people know about it. And that, that going on all through that series and the bad boys getting pummeled for nothing mm-hmm. and then this whole thing happening, it's just almost a snowball effect going into this. And obviously Isaiah has the take on that, the that yeah, the Celtics did do that when they when the bad boys took them out, I believe it was in 88 or 87. I can't remember. 88, my head. 88 yeah. 88, okay, thank you. 88. Welcome. But when that happened, they also left the floor. So they kind of had that perspective on it. And with all these different perspectives, you're really not going to get, there's no definitive answer. The only guys that, the only reason they really knew why they did that, the only guy that could tell you is Bill Ambeer because he was the one that led the charge and wanted to do it. And he's really the only guy that's going to really give you the true answer why he did it. Well, that's if he tells the truth, he might, he could lie. Yeah, like, right. it, we never know. But I mean, that, it's really it's really just going to be your perspective on it because there's all these different aspects. And during the heat of the game, you're obviously might not make the best decisions. Like people will get ejected for technical fouls. It happens. Sometimes people lose their cool. And especially if you're losing three nothing to a team that you've beat three years in a row, that can be a little frustrating. And that, that just awesome. led to the end. And this whole thing can get a bad rap because of it. 
Yeah, and you know, there's no social media back then. So what are you going to yeah. what are you what are you going to like what are you referencing? Like how you're supposed to act at the end of the game. So you just did that the Celtics just did that to you. And so you're gonna come back here and then you're gonna lose and then, you know, I totally understand why Isaiah's coming from. I know people shake hands, you know, I it is what it is. I mean, it happened. Uh, I wish they would have had Bill Lambeer to come in on this documentary just to see just to see what he said. I mean, obviously Jordan's defense was, you know, Isaiah saying that now because it's been so many years later. So he's trying to make himself. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, well later down the road in the episodes, but he gets like he straight up shows like he hates Isaiah Thomas. I mean, just yeah. from like the USA basketball thing, from you know just other things, but. Um, you know, this is the end of the episode here is they're talking about, you know, just switching back to Rodman is, you know, he's tired. He's with the Pistons or whatever. And he comes back. Um, I'm sorry. He comes with the Bulls and he's you know, mentally tired. Uh, you know, they have the thing where he is in the car with the gun. You know, he's tired after. So he won. Those was Jordan rules. Uh, he won with the Pistons. He goes to the Spurs. You know, as you say, stack finds him. Comes back again. He comes back in kind of like a, a cycle, another emotional cycle. Uh, he says, hey, um, I just like, I needed some time. I need 45, 48 hours or whatever, 48 <laughs> hours to leave for a vacation. And, uh, and Michael's like, what? Uh, and Bill Jackson's like, yeah, you, you need to give this guy 48 hours. Grant him permission. And, uh, you know, it turns out he doesn't actually, I think he leaves for like, what, 158 hours or something like that? Like he's not, yeah. he, yeah. he didn't, he didn't go to Vegas for two days. Like he stayed there for like a whole week and a half or something. Like it was, I don't know how long, but he stayed there for uh, quite a bit. So I, uh, I mean that, would you guys ever think that would happen in today's NBA? I don't think that could, unless it was for medical. No, I think the only person I could ever see doing that, he's not even playing no more. Maybe Meta World Peace, formerly known as Ron Artest, mm -hmm. maybe him. But Rodman, I got to say, is the all-time biggest, like, finesse. Like, he is a true definition of working a 9-to-5. Then when he clocks out, he is clocked out. He's on doing whatever mm -hmm. he's on doing. What I mean by that is to be the third option, third best player on a team, and to ask for time off, that is just, like, it's like a goat yeah. move, kind of, like, to me. And, he, and he, you know, he's out partying with Carmen Electra, you know. And just out in Vegas doing his thing, and Jordan goes like, "If anybody needs you know vacations to me, then they have to go to Vegas to get them." Because Dennis and Jordan was like saying, "I'm not going to explain what was in his room or who was in his room. I was just trying right. to get him back to." Yeah. Then the craziest part about it to me, he comes back to practice, outruns everybody. It takes mm -hmm. him four laps to catch up to Dennis. To me, Dennis was always here, like mentally. He just you just had to like give him some strings, like to let loose and. I mean, he was always going to perform for you, and I think that's when the Bulls found the understanding, like, if you let him do this, he's going to do this for us. So, And it won. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the, the quotes that you can kind of relate this to is when he's first with the Pistons and their, their assistant coach at the time was kind of trying to tell Rodman kind of what to oh, do. Yeah. And Chuck Daly says, well, hold on, hold on. Don't tame a wild Mustang. You just got to let him do his thing because yeah. that's the best way he's going to do things. He was not an orthodox guy. He wasn't going to go do practice and then just go study game film, make sure his body was right. He wasn't going to be doing all those extra things. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. He was going to be that classic nine to five guy. That's a great example where he's in, he's doing his work. He's doing everything he can to get better at basketball during that time. But when he's outside of that time, he doesn't really want to talk about basketball. And he did study game film and stuff off, off on his own time. 
uh, he did do things like go to Vegas for the vacation and just that whole interview of itself when they're all looking at it and reviewing it is really funny. But like that was just the way Dennis was wired. And you really just couldn't you couldn't turn him into that classic guy that was going to be watching basketball 24 seven because that way he wasn't going to get like he wasn't going to play as well that way. He, you just had to kind of let him do his thing because in the end, you know, when he's on the floor, he's going to be given at 110 and he's going to help your team win. Yeah, and I mean that's just there's also there's always some guy on that team where you have to coach him differently than the others just because um, you know it's just how he is. I mean Phil Jackson put it put it pretty well. He said he's a maverick. You know he wants to be part of this team, but he also just wants to be sometimes on his own. You know just kind of doing his own thing. And I, I think that if we're gonna hop into episode four, I know you mentioned him or Jordan having to get him in Vegas. That's where episode four kind of starts is I, I think the relationship between Phil Jackson and Dennis Robin, you know, they, they bond through like Native American cultures and you yep. know, we kinda learn the origins of Phil Jackson being in Great Falls, Montana, you know, being around Native Americans his whole life, you know, not seeing the problem with that. You know, other people, you know, at the time were like, Oh, you know, that's not good. But I think the bond through that was, you know, really good. I mean that's kind of what you have to have and that's what Steve Kerr said you know he's never met a coach who's been able to build relationships like Phil Jackson has with any other team he's been on so you know with that you know, I think that was a guy you know you mentioned not been not being able to tame uh, a Mustang I think that was the closest thing you could get is Phil Jackson understanding hey this is how you got to coach him and you know this is how you get this guy to produce on the floor now with going on to Phil Jackson his origins like I said Great Falls, uh, yeah, Great Falls, Montana. You know, he's raised by a really religious family. Um, you know, he was drafted by the Knicks and he won two championships. So he was definitely, he definitely knew how to play basketball and he he understood the game at a, a very, uh, very high rate. Oh yeah, for sure. And Phil, like, not only was a great coach, he was a decent player. Like you said, won two titles and he was around a time. I think it was like they were explaining the documentary. He was like around like hippies. They were, like, doing acid. So it was just, mm-hmm. to me, one thing crazy so far about this documentary, all these personalities coming together and Phil kind of being all, all around all these different types of people's whole life, like you said, very religious, and also around people doing acid, two completely different things, and kind of finding that common ground to, you know, get a complete understanding of what's going on. And one last thing I want to say about Phil and Dennis, um, I think one of the main reasons Dennis needed a break, he even said when Scotty came back and he was falling back to the third option, he kind of felt some type of way because he loved the fact that Michael said he needed him. Cause I, obviously we talked about in previous uh, show when he came to his uh, room for a cigar, that was like his weird way of apologizing or something. Mm-hmm. He just also liked that fact. So when Scotty came back, he needed time to regroup and I will like kind of go back to reality. And with Phil, I mean, he, he was a good player. Um, but I think definitely better as a coach. It was cool seeing how he, um, his background was cause I had no idea about the native American background. Yeah, I thought that was absolutely interesting. Ice's father was a pastor. They grew up extremely religious. They, they learned, the, like, studied the rapture throughout their, like, childhood where you're kind of, you're living that spiritual day by day. What are you going to do best for that day? And, like, Phil saying, I, I really enjoyed sports almost more than God is kind of where he really looked like he found his real love of basketball and he almost wanted to coach it just as much as he wanted to play it. And the, the fact is, is this dude didn't come on and he wasn't just a, a great A assistant for the Bulls when he came on. The guy traveled to 
like Northern South America to coach basketball, where they were talking stories about there were people getting shot at these basketball games, like the officials, like that's just absolutely crazy. The fact that they have absolutely allowed this, this is crazy. But like he started there because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to coach and he would travel the world just to find the job that he wanted. And then he ends up getting a big opportunity to come back to New York to, um, I believe it was the Alba, uh, Alpatroons or something like that yeah, in New, New York, York Albany, where, yeah. yeah, ABA, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. in the ABA where they end up winning a title there, and then he ends up getting a job with the Bulls with the hookup of Jerry Krause. But I mean, the dude was very good in college too. He played a really big role at South Dakota. He was a really successful player. He ended up getting drafted in the second round. I mean, mm-hmm. the, he was a really good basketball player, and he really had that experience where like he knew what players needed at points. Like he's experienced a whole season. Kind of this crazy story as he was talking about during his career and just kind of those things. And like he understands, like almost the spiritual aspect comes into play where he understands what some guys need because he kind of has that more, that more sense of that um, philosophy more than kind of just your, the normal basketball philosophy, which is almost one way that these guys all could gel together is because Bill kind of had that weird, um, he had that weird attribute that he could bring guys together that were a lot different than each other. Yeah, and I think, you know, say what you want about Doug Collins. I know I just raved about him being, like, super passionate, you know, very energetic. Um, Phil was, like, you know, night and day compared to that. But I think, you know, I'm not saying that's how you win a, you know, how you win a team over now. But I think, you know, players relate to a guy who has understanding, has uh, empathy for what's going on in your life. I mean, if Rodman was faced with a coach who was just screaming at him, I mean, he would have totally shut down. He would have probably never, he probably never would have come back. So I, I think, you know, having like that understanding that Phil had, he's able to not only adapt with multiple player styles, um, you know, attitudes on the team, but he's also willing to get people to buy into what they're saying because they're buying into what his their lives are. So I think, you know, I think he's one of the coaches that have, you know, not obviously fizzled out when he went to the Knicks uh, after the Lakers and stuff, you know, later down in his career. But I think when he was with the Bulls, you know, there were so many attitudes and egos on the team. He was able to harness them all and kind of focus them towards one goal, which was, you know, winning an NBA championship. Oh, yeah, and he did a terrific job. As, as a coach of the Chicago Bulls, he only lo- he lost under five playoff series his entire time, undefeated in the finals. And that's a big testament just just the way he was able to get all these personalities. You got Michael, you got Scotty. And you obviously got Dennis and other guys on the team, and he was able just to kind of bring them together and find an understanding. And this is a man who knew he was in even 82 and 0, and he's a guy who's not thinking about himself. He's putting the team first, even though he doesn't even know he's going to go the year. He's just trying to take care of the job at hand and trying to get the sixth title in eight years. So for him, like to put the team first, I think is just a testament to the great, you know, Phil Jackson, one of the greatest coaches. Uh, so we have in the chat, we have a question. We have a, like, they asked if we do a Q&A. Oh. A Q&A? <laughs> well, maybe these questions don't pertain to basketball. First question, what team? What is it? What team? Uh, this is, what team should they use in their FIFA match? Does anyone play soccer here? No. I do a little bit. All right. I'll say pick, FC Barcelona. Pick two though. random teams. Barcelona and who else? FC Barcelona. <laughs> Oh, uh, Manchester United. That's my team. Okay. Go with Manchester United. Man United. <laughs> okay. That's funny. I, I, I vibe with it. And I uh, would say uh, Barcelona. 
Yeah, FC Barcelona. All right. There you, you go. Can't go wrong with Mesty there. Can't go wrong Thanks, with Messi. Right. Thank you. Two followers. Thank you. Just, you know, just, yeah. you know, just cutting it off. That's totally fine. Yeah. So uh, go yeah. ahead, Brandon, if you want to speak on Phil Jackson's philosophy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, on a side note, Wayne Rooney was my favorite player growing up, so that's why I got the Manchester United. Mm-hmm. Like, That's why yeah. I like them. But anyway, back to Phil Jackson. <laughs> I mean – the one thing that's really sad about this is like when he was eventually hired to be in the management later when he was re- brought to the New York Knicks and that didn't work out. And mm-hmm. we all we have all watched Stephen A. Smith and all of his rants <laughs> on the New York Knicks yeah, at yeah, that yeah. time on, re- on repeat and compilations. It's just it's a rough time yeah. for Phil Jackson. He's not getting anything <laughs> in his favor. But I mean, that just kind of shows like some like he had this amazing gift for coaching. And that's really what he was good at. He was good at being on the floor, drawing up plays, working his schemes to the best like that triangle offense. That's what he did. And that was with strong suits. And that's really what just brought him to help coach all of these guys together in basketball, regardless of their personalities and what they needed. And really just brought all of these guys together. And none of these guys, obviously, I said on the last show, None of all, all these guys outside of Michael were top lottery pick guys. I mean, obviously, Scottie Pippen was a fifth pick overall, but he wasn't from the Kentucky or the North Carolina, the UCLA, all these powerhouse schools at the time. He was coming from an NAIA school in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And Scottie Pippen, who I believe, was pick number 27, and he was literally not scouted until some dude saw him playing on the street or whatever and asked him to come <laughs> play at a local college. Like, and then you bring other guys down the road, like Steve Kerr, who wasn't even a first round pick. Like these guys, he really knew how to take all of this talent for what it was and used it for the advantage that he could use it in his schemes. And that's really what helped them win all of these championships during the dynasty with Phil Jackson. Yeah. I mean, there's there's just so much, I mean, there's just so much that so much combination of um, variables that all have come together just for good. I mean, you know, we talk about the draft position. We talk about Jerry Krause grabbing these people, the trade for Bill Cartwright, the, you know, the all this stuff that, you know, and, eventually. And to get Horace Grant, too. And to get Horace Grant, yeah. who, I, I mean, there is rumors that he's a snitch, but I don't know if that's <laughs> yeah. true or not. Yeah, we'll, we'll save yeah, that for yeah, later. Yeah. We'll save that yeah, for, yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll save that we'll for We'll save that for later down the road, but, you know. <laughs> God, the chat is just getting a little crazy right now. Um, I'll tell you. Nah, but that now. Nah, pardon. <laughs> but yeah, overall, I mean, there's just so many things that come that came together for this organization. You know, obviously, getting Jordan was the first piece that brought you success. But you know, I really think it was the moves. You know, people didn't like Jerry Krause. I think he wasn't a cool guy. Like talking with people, but I think it was a smart basketball mind that was able to bring in pieces that was that were able to, you know, assist Jordan in getting these championships. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought overall, I thought these two, these two episodes here were really good. I thought it gave, I like learning the backgrounds of, you know, where people came from. I, I didn't know anything Absolutely. about, yeah, I didn't know anything about Phil Jackson before watching these. I knew, you know, who he was. I mean, I knew he was a great coach, but I didn't know he was, you know, raised in Montana and was, you know, I knew he was a Zen master, but I didn't know he was, you know, with, you know, I didn't know he was with Native Americans growing up and raised in a religious family. I didn't know he coached in Puerto Rico. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know that either. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. So I think learning these, and I know there's more stories that come out after this, but I, I think just learning the backgrounds of where these guys came from is, 
I think that's the most fascinating thing for me. Definitely. I agree. And honestly, any like high school or college kid watching us saying like they want to like transfer like to another school because they're not getting their opportunity. Literally, Michael Jordan, the GOAT, got cut from the varsity team as a sophomore. Scotty Pippen was an equipment manager in college. And Dennis Rodman was just found playing pickup, you know, at like LA Fitness or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, so literally, any, and these guys are three Hall of Famers. So, like, anything is possible. Same thing with Phil Jackson and the other guys. It's just crazy. Like, he even got Scott Burrell. Most people don't even know who Scott Burrell is, no disrespect. But, like, you know, all these guys to come together Jeff Bushler, um, Will Purdue, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just saying. A lot of these guys don't even look like they play basketball, but that's one thing I really think. (laughs) I just think that was cool how they all, like, bonded. And uh, even though some rough patches and a few things could have been avoided, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they got the job done. Yeah, and a lot of of people would say, like, there's always the one team that a dynasty has to come over. And a lot of the times, like, it was the – like, for the Celtics, it was the Lakers and vice versa. And the Bulls really – the bad boys almost created their dynasty because if they wouldn't have taken like the like obviously they could have folded after they lost to the the Pistons the first time but they, oh they're a good basketball team I don't think we're ever going to beat them but them stepping up their game year after year to play these guys and end up beating them that gave them the confidence that hey we can beat anybody we can beat the Lakers we can beat the Celtics we can beat anybody that's good in this league ending up taking out guys like the Jazz down the road and then you also got the Cavs as well in the Doug Collins era when they were a really good team at the time, they were really un- over, like underrated. And a lot of guys were picking the Cavs in that series. And then Jordan says, well, I took care of you. I took care of you. And I took care of you. All the news, port- news oh, yeah. reporters that said the Cavs were going to win that series, which M- everybody knows MJ ends up winning. And just that whole thing going on is just crazy. And, and it's, it's just as crazy as the chat right now. The chat is absolutely I know. I know that's I, my parents laughing. I about. know. I, uh, I'm just going to ignore so that. Like, I can't even see because I'm doing this on my phone. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, you don't you don't need to see any of this. So, um, it, well, if there's, it's just, yeah. If there's anything else, uh, I think for the sake of my safety and well-being to my public rep, uh, reputation, um, unless there's anything else you guys would like to add, I think this just, has been uh, pretty good. So, Travis, go ahead. Yeah, you're good. Oh, thank you. Another great episode, guys. And we'll be back Monday, I believe, for episodes five and six. Yep, Monday. So tune in live again. Yep, Monday at eight, episodes five and six. Mics and takes, MVSP, collaboration. So, Everyone, do you have a good hopefully weekend? With, hopefully without everybody there as well. Hopefully. we'll mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, yeah I'll, hopefully. I'll get I'll, I'll contact Joe again, and hopefully he'll yes. be he'll be out of the boonies this time. Yeah, we'll but be fully restored. It was def- definitely a good job. Yeah, hopefully we'll be recovered. Absolutely. All right, you guys be good. <laughs> <laughs>